Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name is Ed. And I'm Amanda. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. Yeah. Did you know it's our third year of Not Quite Right? I hadn't occurred to me, but you're right. (laughs) I was just thinking about that today. Yeah, that's cool. Yes. Go us. Well, I wanted to say thank you so much for my Christmas present. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. So, for our listeners, I've just been gifted a DVD, which is in and of itself already a red flag. (laughs) (laughs) But the DVD is Ian Thorpe Beneath the Suit. And we did have to check to see how old it was when this was filmed. (laughs) I'm like, okay, when was this made? Was he of age? (laughs) Am I holding, like, child abuse material in my hands? (laughs) But no, he was, like, 20 or 21, so it's fine. We may now enjoy the foremost interactive profile of the world-renowned swimmer. I don't know. It's just got some real problematic language on here, though. Well, it is called Beneath the Suit. I know. So they knew what they were doing. they, They knew exactly what they were doing. There's also a very intriguing picture on the back here of him in his his slippery suit, and it's rated G. For general exhibition. (laughs) I'm very excited to watch it. I'm Um, sure you are. I don't have a DVD player, but I'm sure I'll figure (laughs) something out. (laughs) Now, I hope you didn't think I came empty-handed because I have a gift for you too. I have a Christmas present. Christmas slash early birthday. Oh. Merry Christmas. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) It's a bottle of Irish whiskey, Dubliner. Excellent. Very on brand for this episode. I thought you'd appreciate it. Fantastic. I, I do appreciate it. Don't go all Freddie Mullins on us, but um, I don't know. Or Mullins. Mullins. He's a character. Oh, in the that Daily. guy. Yes, <laughs> Freddie Mullins. Mullins. Yeah. Mullins, beg I your pardon. Yeah. It's not like I didn't just read it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's drink that. Okay. <laughs> you really had to twist my arm. All right. So we'll get to Dubliners and the Dead very soon. But first, we felt it was time to share our top tips for winning the Not Quite Right prize. Yeah, so this is something we've talked about before. We've put some tips up on the website, actually, as well, and I'm sure several of our listeners have gone there and checked those out, and I hope they've been useful to you. But we thought we'd delve into things just a little bit more because we know the prize is coming up. Yeah. Okay, so the first one I've got, I guess the importance of this really came home to me when we read the entries for the last prize, and that's Mm. make sure that you write a story. Mm. So in my spare time, I read a lot of novels that don't really have a story or not focused on story. No, they're focused on just completely... (laughs) Completely befuddling the reader. (laughs) (laughs) Focused on making you have an existential crisis. (laughs) And I think there's definitely a time and a place for that. And the time and a place is not in a flash fiction contest. You've only got 500 words. And when we say write a, you know, tell a story, that doesn't mean it's a wild adventure story. No, it can be a quiet story. And I guess to just unpack that a little, because what does that mean, story? Mm. I guess the distinction became very clear to us in reading the competition entries. These pieces that I would call a reflection versus the pieces that were a story. And the pieces that were a reflection... They were moody and it was just like it might have a character, but the character was just thinking about something that Mm. happened in the past, reflecting on it, and nothing really happened. And it's not to say that can't be a compelling story. I mean, we're about to talk about the dead, which isn't far Mm. off that, but it's just important to just have something happen. And I think that was forgotten a little bit. I think sometimes people get in their feels when they're writing, which is great, but in terms of a competition – If you're just describing the feeling and describing a character's reaction to something, Mm -hmm. it's not the same as telling me what happened. And I think this is probably an issue for a lot of writers who are coming to it new. 
maybe they've always known or they've been told that they're a great writer mm. in their life. And so they know that that's a skill that they have. But being a great writer and able to string together a really beautiful sentence can be different mm. to being a good storyteller. And it's a skill that can absolutely be learned. And so I guess I want to explain for someone who doesn't really understand well, what's the difference between a reflection and a story. One way I think is helpful to think of it is to think of it like a movie, right? So in a movie, you might have a flashback scene or you might have a moment where someone's reading a letter, right? And it's being vo there's a voiceover for the reading of the letter. These moments of kind of introspection that have to get shown in a movie. If that's all you had, the movie would be mm. so boring, yeah. right? And I'm not saying you have to have a car chase, but you do have to have something happening. You have yeah. to show people doing something, whatever that is, for that to be a compelling story. And typically that some significant change happens within mm. that piece to make that, well, why have I chosen this thing to tell you about? So if you can picture your story like a scene in a movie, I think you're on the right track. And that does it could be any movie, right? Like movies can be all sorts of things. I'm not saying it has to be the latest Marvel movie. I guess I'm just saying that if it's all in sepia tones and it's all set in the past and we're not actually seeing what's happening now in this moment to a character, then I think that's something that needs to be addressed typically. Yeah, and just to showcase our winning entry from last time, mm. the interrogation by Remy Joel, you can't say that was an action-packed piece. No, there there was wasn't a whole subtle. lot that happened in there. It was very subtle. Basically a conversation that happened, yeah, really. Yeah, but again, there was a change and there was, I guess, a strong character development, which is the second item I have on the list, actually, is to focus on character. Mm -hmm. And I can think of a couple of examples of stories that we read that were focused on the action within the story and neglecting, I think, that character development. Yeah. Because the, the important thing about character is, is it creates a connection with the reader. Otherwise, it's simply just a sequence of events. And no matter how exciting it is, a reader cannot connect with a piece of work that is just a series of events that happen. So Even how, a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> exactly. You need the lemony snickets. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, to me, this is probably the crucial thing. Again, it's not impossible to write a compelling piece of flash fiction that doesn't feature character, but uh, almost always, I think, in certainly in our experience reading those stories, that was time and again something that came up as really making stories stand out and, I guess, creating a connection for us as readers. And I think what's really important here too is because I saw plenty of entries where people were, they did establish a character or characters. They had some, right? But they were what I would call two-dimensional characters. Yeah. In some cases, they weren't even given a name. And that's not necessarily a problem, mm -hmm. but I guess you have to think about, well, why aren't you introducing this person to me fully? Like, yeah. I need to know them to care about what's going to happen to them. I don't necessarily need a name, but a name tells you a lot about a person yeah. and it can convey a lot of information really quickly. Like, for example, gender, potentially age, nationality, all sorts of things. I mean, they might be assumptions, but I think in flash fiction, sometimes you are choosing names that convey a lot of information. I'm certainly careful about the names I choose when I write a story. If you're giving someone a silly nickname, that's already giving me a kind mm. of impression of that person versus if you're giving me quite a formal name, a really common name versus a more quirky name. All of these things are something to consider. Now, obviously, character isn't all about the name. And what comes next is, well, what do I know about this person? Mm. Okay, they tuck their hair behind their ear. 
I don't care. Like, what does that tell me? You know what I mean? Like, I guess one of my pet peeves is when authors describe the eye colour mm. of someone. And that's just personal to me. Plenty of people love that. And I'm not necessarily against it, but it's often a red flag for you didn't have anything more interesting to tell me about this character. And certainly in flash fiction, unless that eye colour is somehow really crucial, like it's going to reveal their parentage or something Mm -hmm. like that, I probably don't need to know because, like, it's not the most interesting thing about a person. If I could think about the top 100 people closest to me, there's only a handful whose eye colour I could very confidently say what it is. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. But what I really want to see, and I've heard this described as a characteristic moment, that when the character comes onto the scene in the story, you show me something about them Mm -hmm. that is so them that that tells me who they are. And usually it's an action, right? Or it might be a line of dialogue. And now I know, right, Mm -hmm. I know who you are and I know what you want. I think it's useful to focus on character, not just as a thought exercise, but practically when you're working through your story especially on the second and further on revisions of your story. Mm. If you're stuck, if you're sitting there looking at a page and you're stuck thinking, well, what is my story about? How am I going to grab the reader? The answer to that question is almost always character mm. and, and not adding more explosions or making, <laughs> making this, the story more flashy. And there's always more detail that you can add into the story mm. to make that character come forward for the reader. And I'm not great at that, I have to say, in my own writing. Like, I find character is something I have to add in later. Yeah. I find my characters aren't well-defined when I start writing, and it's not till later that I've sort of gotten to know them. Yeah. That I can better flesh them out. And maybe that's true in your flash fiction too. Like, okay, you've written your first draft, fine. Let's not expect that to be perfect by any means. But now give us a little bit more colour. Colour in your main character. Enough for us to care about what they're about to do or what they're about to experience or how they're about to change. I I think that makes sense, though, because when we set about to write a story, I think most of the time what you have in mind is a story and not Mm. a character. I think that's so true. I've got an idea, like this funny thing happens or a really cool setting that I want to explore. But like who's in your setting and why are they the one whose story you've decided to Mm. write? And like you said, that person or that character may not be evident to you until you actually write the story, until you sit with it for a while and develop it. And if you get to the end of your story and you haven't really understood what your character is about and what are their motivations, what what are they all about, then there might be time to step back and think, well, how can I develop this character and integrate them into the story and make the story about them? Yeah. You know, one one character or more characters, you've got room for more than one protagonist or one main character. And why is it special to them? Like what makes it uniquely their story and therefore uniquely human and universally human at the same time? Another piece of advice you often hear about characters is when they come onto the scene, they need to bring the stakes with them, mm-hmm. right? So what is it they want or need or what happy little perfect world are you about to crash into and destroy? Like when a character is introduced in your story and in flash fiction, it's probably going to be in the first sentence or two, Yeah, what are they bringing with them? So that's your opportunity to basically set things up and you can use your character to set it all up to set up what the end of the story even is going to be. All right, so the next couple of points I have here, Mm. maybe you agree with them, maybe you don't. I'm not sure if they'll be controversial or not. I want to address the anti-prompt specifically, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's something that we do. It's our twist, Mm -hmm. if you will. I love a twist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is the anti-prompt, and it's not something that the people may be used to in writing competition. So my next tip is that the anti-prompt is not a license, it is a challenge. Mm. 
right? So what we're doing is we're asking you to break a rule of writing, remembering that rules are there for a reason. Yeah. And the reason is that they tend to make your writing better. So the purpose of the anti-prompt is not a license to just throw the rule out the window and, and write the worst thing that you can possibly write. <laughs> it's actually to find a way to break the rule in a way that supports your writing and that makes your writing better or makes it different or interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a next level challenge, right? It's, mm. a, it's a bit tricky. Like, And so people, if you are coming to this as a new writer or an amateur writer, as most of us are, thinking that through deeply can be difficult. Yeah. So in the first Not Quite Right prize, our anti-prompt was to break the rule of avoiding adverbs. Mm. So a lot of the responses we received were including as many adverbs as they possibly could. But look, there were people who did that and did well. And I, I guess overwhelmingly, the response to our anti-prompt of avoid all adverbs, most people who weren't confident just had one. Yep. They just had one or a couple and they didn't delete them and they just embraced them. And that was enough. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine if that's the level that you're operating at and that's what served your story. We had some people that challenged themselves and went all out and were like, I want, I'm going to put an adverb in every sentence mm -hmm. or I'm going to include as many as possible or just heaps. And almost always that was not the right choice yeah. because, as you've indicated, that rule's there for a reason. Adverbs tend to weaken your prose. You and know. other times, like a strong adverb is exactly what you need. Yeah. And, and experienced authors would know that. Like sometimes you need it and you should use it. Even Stephen King uses them, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's so anti. Sometimes it's the very best word to choose. And so some people did do that well. And I, there were obviously some really creative takes as well. And one that I saw a couple of times were, was people who used an adverb as a character name. And so that became a central feature without detracting from the story and it just became the inspiration for that character. And I guess the other people who were successful in the competition were just smart asses, right? So it helps to be a smart ass. Like they took that challenge and gave it a fun little twist of their mm. own. They twisted it again, right? Yep. We had, what was it, strike action? Mm -hmm. So in strike action we had a character called Lee and that became the suffix for yes. all these words. So we had proudly, loyally, and that was really fun. I really liked that. And it just felt like a, a clever little approach. Yeah. And I guess that leads into my, my next point, which is don't worry too much about the prompts. Mm. Write the best story you can. Yes, like, I think that's 100%. the most important thing. The reason we have prompts, they're there to inspire you. They're there to demonstrate that you actually wrote the story for this competition mm. and you need to absolutely make sure that they're included. And we definitely love seeing those prompts interpreted in interesting ways for mm. sure. But above all, we want to read great stories. That's right. So the story should come first. You shouldn't be sitting there thinking, how can I showcase these prompts in the biggest, boldest way possible? Just write a great story. Yeah, so. for sure. Okay. My final tip is avoid gimmicks. Okay. So what was the, the Yeah, the I just learned the hermit crab fiction. Hermit crab I crab never fiction. heard of that before. Now yeah, I which know. is basically borrowing like a shell from a known structure oh. and then just sticking your story in the middle of it. Okay, that hand gesture you just did was very <laughs> offensive. <laughs> All right. Okay. I've got a lot to unpack there. It's the hermit crab. <laughs> I don't want to know. Anyway. 
No, that's good because I wondered what the term hermit crab meant and I wondered for like five seconds and then I got distracted and started thinking about something else. But now you've explained it to that's me, good. that's wonderful. And now I've got a hand gesture to remember it by. That's even more wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're too distracted by your Ian Thorpe I know, DVD. I'm still in there. And it's very hot in here. Yeah. I don't know if it's just Thorpey or... <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about, you know, stories that are written into a shopping list. Yeah. You know? And look, I think there's a, again, there's a time and a place. Mm. And sometimes you come across a really compelling one. I've right? seen them. I've seen plenty. Yeah. But yeah. I think that they are at this stage, at this point in time, they're quite overdone. I think it's far more refreshing to see like a really good story that's been well written and well told. Yeah. I think that's a lot more satisfying than just an idea. I think this is. This I fully agree with you. You know, I'm not a big fan of hermit crab fiction. I certainly am a fan of some. Yeah. Like, I've seen some that I think are done really well. I've also seen some that I thought were just good, like good stories and pretty good. And mm-hmm. they might have been shortlisted and I thought, yeah, I agree with that. Or even one in certain cases in competitions that I've been involved in. And I thought, oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah. But I do think it's worth sharing. Like, we said we'd be open in this process. Mm. We're both biased against hermit crab fiction. <laughs> That's your two judges. That doesn't mean don't do it. I mean, we said previous episode where we talked about how to win, like, be sure to challenge us. If if mm. you're passionate about hermit crab fiction and you want to teach us a lesson, by all means, we welcome that. It's not like we're going to throw it out with the rubbish. No. We will absolutely read it. And if it's a great story, then we're probably still going to love it. But it is a bias that we both have that I guess is worth being aware of if you're going to enter the competition. Yeah. All right. Well, those are my top tips. So do you have any that you want to add? I guess it's worth bringing up a couple that you didn't touch on from the blog post that yeah. we had. So one of the pieces of advice in the blog post is zoom in. Mm. It's flash fiction, right? But we saw a lot of stories that were like an entire quest from start to finish or an entire love story Mm. from start to finish. And in fact, uh, there was one story that did very well and was shortlisted, which was pretty much this multiple lives actually. And so again, you can break the rule, but generally speaking, it's better in flash fiction to just pick a scene. And just really focus in, give us the juicy details and let's bask in that scene and explore that scene rather than trying to like tell a a whole bigger story. Mm. Like you can't tell me Lord of the Rings in flash fiction, right? But you could maybe tell me Smeagol's reaction to the ring in flash fiction and and I'd be moved by it. I think the reason for that is because... You can't develop character mm. in such a And that is exactly what was missing in these examples. Mm. You've just given me a very generic character and you can't develop setting or story, plot yeah. either, right? So you've given me a generic character on a generic quest in a generic setting. I've got a knight saving a damsel in a castle. Yeah. Like that's just a template. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which leads to the next point that's on the blog post as well, which is savour the details. Right. So in flash fiction, you have almost, it's an opportunity, but it's almost an obligation to use details very carefully and very uh, strategically to help tell your story. So don't just tell me the brand of whiskey mm. they were drinking. Yep. Like, why are you telling me they were drinking whiskey? Is that important to the story? If so, tell me that piece of information in a way that reveals something yeah. to me more than what's necessarily on the surface. Yeah. So, and this brings me, I guess, to my to my two points, which is a little bit of inspiration from some very <laughs> successful and well-known authors that maybe brings some of this all together. So, if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed with all the advice we've just peppered you with, there's two people I'd like you to think of. 
The first one is Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe's concept of the single effect, which I've just learned about myself, but which really sums up my view on what makes a compelling piece of flash fiction. And not everyone would agree with this, but I'm one of the judges, so it's worth hearing me out, I guess. But that every piece of your story should be working towards a single effect. And in his view, that is typically an emotion, Mm. a feeling you're trying to evoke in the reader. And every word of your story, or every sentence at least, should be pushing us towards that feeling. So if it's melancholy that you're wanting to convey, then the choice of drink someone's drinking, Mm. how they're drinking it, where they're sitting when they're drinking it, what they look like, like all of those things can contribute to a sense of melancholy if you choose the right detail. Yeah. And obviously on the flip side, if you're trying to have a comedic effect, absolutely what someone wears, what they say, quirks of their behaviour can really contribute to the comedic effect. And all of the things that you choose should be contributing to that one single effect in your story. And if nothing else, that's just a case of making sure everything in your story needs to be there. Yeah. And and it's such a huge opportunity as well to develop character by selecting not only details, but anecdotes, parts of the story Mm. that you're focusing in on. There's a story I always think about from last time that did this really well, and I can't remember the name of the story. It's the one where the dog shits on the carpet. Do you remember that one? (laughs) Truly Madly Deeply? Yes, it is. It is Truly Madly Deeply by Kathy Prokovnik. And that's a story that's made up of this, about five or so, just really small vignettes. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Small anecdotes that are just chosen to perfectly paint these characters. Mm. And Um, to set up what happens in the story. Yeah, exactly. So basically in the apartment where the dog shits on the carpet sets up what these characters are like, that the two main characters, how they're different, how they're similar. Where they're at in their relationship. Yeah, exactly. And all of those details are so well chosen. And even backstory is conveyed, Mm. like, very quickly and simply just by the choice of details. Yeah, and what I really enjoyed about that story is it's not a single scene. You kind of move dynamically from these, just through these little slices of life that really illustrate these characters and lead, as you say, to this fulfilling conclusion because you understand these characters. And that's only managed to be done because of these little details, these Mm. well-chosen details that are all kind of working towards this purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a perfect example of that. And I guess if you think of everything through that lens, you're probably going to be doing pretty well. So the second author I'd like to call back from the dead, if you will, to learn from is Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And Hemingway has the iceberg theory. We all know icebergs, right? Fatal to Leonardo DiCaprio. But his theory is basically that most of the story should be beneath the surface. So only a very small percentage should be on the page, basically, and everything else should be left between the lines or beneath the surface for the reader to discover on their own. And that's not essential. You can tell me a pretty straight story and it be compelling, But I think if you want to really grip someone and if you really want to get them thinking and have them thinking about your story long after they've put it down, that's the way to do it. I just watched a movie. Titanic. Encapsulates that. (laughs) Uh, I know. It was The Avengers. (laughs) It was May, December, starring Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Just came out recently. It was Mm -hmm. really good. It's a great example of the story being just below the surface and you get little peeks into it. Mm. And by the end of it, you have worked out what that story is, but it's never 
stated. Mm. I think a good example from our last comp was the Backmire Bridge, Summer yeah, of 08, yeah, yeah. I think is the title. Yeah. And in that story, a lot was beneath the surface. Mm. We certainly saw what happened. There was a yeah. scene, but there was a lot more going on. And I, I believe I, I was critical of it at the time, saying maybe there was a little bit too much that was mm. left unsaid. And that that's debatable. That's just a matter of opinion. But certainly it benefited from giving us more to think about. And I mean, I'm remembering it now, right? I didn't have to look that up. I remember mm. the story well. Yep. And that's why that one stood out for us. So I guess with all of that in mind, like ultimately my number one piece of advice is have fun. Yep. Please have fun. Do it how you want to do it. Be shit at it. Who cares? But just do it. And this is art. Like you don't know what it is Mm. until you uncover it and it's your baby and it's like let your freak flag fly. Like what do you want to say in the world? Because – I can get friggin' chat GPT to tell me a story, yeah. you know what I mean? Or, like, what's your story? What do you feel like on that day or that weekend that you really just want to put out into the world? Because, you know, ultimately we're all humans and that's the connection we're all seeking. For sure. And I think that enthusiasm come, and that love of your own work comes through. There were so many stories that we read last time that, I, I don't know, just made us laugh and you could definitely see that the writer was having a good time. Worst case scenario, right? Worst case scenario, you don't long list. Mm-hmm. But if you liked it, it, you still win. And I guarantee if you really liked it that much, other people would too. Yeah. So that's what I would hope for everyone, that they have a good time, that they produce something that they're proud of and can pat themselves on the back over. Each episode, Amanda and I take turns recommending each other books or movies that we may not have chosen for ourselves. It's a segment we call Get Wrecked. So this time I recommended to you the short story The Dead by James Joyce, which is the last story in Dubliners. And we haven't really spoken about short stories before. No, just really short ones. We talk about really short ones a lot. That's right, really (laughs) short ones. So, But what do you think about them? Are you a fan? Have you read much in the way of short stories? I've read some. I remember going through a phase where I was like looking for them and wanting to read famous ones and just, I guess... I didn't have the capacity to read every book under the sun, but I thought oh, I'll read some highbrow. Mm, what'd you read? Short stories. Well, I've read Hills Like White Elephants by mm-hmm. Hemingway, The Yellow Wallpaper, mm-hmm. and The Box Social, and The Most Dangerous Game. So, I mean, that was literally from Googling famous short stories, and that's what came up. And they're famous for a reason. They're really good. I mm-hmm. recommend all of them. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't really like them. Like I yeah. I recently took out the Joyce Carol Oates collection of short stories from the library and I fucking hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but it, like it just feels like such a wank half the time. Mm. Like you're not really telling me a story, you're just like evoking a mood. Yeah. And it's not a mood I'm into. Yeah. But having said that, like some of these stories are quite compelling. Like like I said, they're famous for a reason. What do you think? Am I crazy? Yeah, I, I actually I feel the same way. And I've read a few short story collections, quite quite a few. And I went and looked at my Goodreads to see how they rated. And I think only one or two of them I actually gave five stars to. All the mm. rest of them were two, three, sometimes four stars. So, I, I mean, I think it's this weird area where you read a short story and it gives you a little bit of something and then mm. it's over. And then it's gone and you forget about it forever. Like, I find it very difficult to recall 
any short stories mm. or, or maybe a couple, but very many actual like characters and plots yeah. and what happened in, in short stories. Well, I mean, the ones I listed, all of them, I could give you a rough summary mm. of the pl- plot. Like I remember what they're about, but yeah. I don't remember the character names or much about them necessarily. I think, I don't know, a lot of them are really depressing as well. Like it's kind of this existential exploration of mm. like just humanity or something instead of telling a story. <laughs> yeah. I think there was a time when short stories were more popular, maybe commercially and just more read. Mm. Like it's not a time I was alive, but like first half of the 20th century, mm. maybe. 30s, well, I'm thinking just, too, like magazines that exactly. used to publish short stories. Yeah, I know Stephen digestible. King got a lot of publication in that regard. Yeah. And I think if I was in that frame of mind, like I'm just even thinking of the Pickwick papers and stuff. <laughs> like if I was in a frame of mind of like, I've got the paper and I've got nothing else to do because there's no such thing as the internet, then that would be really thrilling to read the latest instalment by an author that I gave a shit about. I think that context would be great. I think sometimes the way I'm reading it is like, oh, I'm going to look it up online and mm-hmm. then I find it and then it's just this kind of PDF or something yeah. of like something that's come into public domain and it doesn't have the same feel yeah. to it. Yeah, it it feels off somehow. There are a couple of authors of short stories that I did really enjoy, and I think they're authors that pretty much exclusively write short stories. One of them is Raymond Carver. I think I've read only one of his collections. I may have read two, I can't recall, but Will You Please Be Quiet, Please is one of them, and I, I really love that one. I gave it five stars. Oh, but they're That's all the story s- of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you've got kids, you'll know. But they're all really depressing, and mm. they're all just like, alcoholism and failed marriages but they're really like they're really raw and just like all on the table and i really kind of like how honest they were are they all irish authors or something are they no it's one author okay raymond carver the american guy oh okay the other one is jorge luis borges and i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing his name you're definitely not and but his stories are more about like the concept they're kind of vaguely sci-fi they're like little thought experiments and some of them are really short, but they're classics, or many of them are classics. And, and both of those writers, I think, are pretty much only write short stories mm-hmm. and, and have you know, achieved success for that. And I don't know how many writers now, in the last like, 20, 30 years, have re- achieved success for short stories. I mean, Joyce Carol Oates, you, you mentioned. Well, I mean, it's worth mentioning that a lot of beloved authors do write short stories. Yeah. And the n- most notable who I mentioned earlier, Stephen King. Mm. He's written a shitload. Yeah, that's true. Many of the movies that we know are short stories or novellas written by Stephen King. The Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. is a short story. Yeah. And Children of the Corns, a short story. The Green Mile, The Body, which The Stand was based on. Mm-hmm. That's actually a novella, but it includes a short story, which was, what's his name? The Revenge of Lardass Hogan. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen The Stand... Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah, you know Lardass. So, like, he's done heaps, and he used to get published all the time in magazines and Penthouse yeah. and Cosmopolitan yeah. and stuff back when that was a thing and print media was making dollars. And that's pretty much how he got his start and how he kept himself going until he ventured into the much, much longer form. Mm. <laughs> that I didn't he, realise he started... Are you saying he started as a short story writer? Yeah, that's or? what he used to... He used to write yeah, short I stories. Thought, I, thought he, I thought he just kind of broke out with Carrie. No, well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. As a novel, yes. Yeah. But he was already getting published all over the shop at mm. that time, and that was probably giving him the confidence to... Yeah. But he still writes short stories now. In fact, he's got a collection coming out in May this year, apparently. 
So that'll be interesting to see. Like, I love Stephen King, but I'm also, he's hit and miss to me. I'm sure mm. he's hit and miss to most fans. But yeah, like Hemingway, for example, <laughs> like writing mm. short stories as well, which are just as well renowned as the novels. So there's a Canadian author called Alice Munro who yeah. actually won the Nobel yep. Prize, what year, 2013 or something? Yep. For mastery of the contemporary short story. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, one. there's mm. people still doing it. But like, but she's also been doing it for quite a long time. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, recently I don't have my finger on the pulse that that much, but but it just feels like a kind of a bygone thing. Which is funny because we know that people like find it hard to consume. Yeah. Anything yeah. long at all. So why wouldn't that be the case for novels? And I'm sure it is. It's certainly the case for me. I struggle to focus it long enough to enjoy a book. But maybe the emergence of flash fiction has kind of negated the need for short stories. I don't know. All right. So let's talk about The Dead by James Joyce from Dubliners. Now that we've just talked about how much I hate short stories. (laughs) Well, actually, I looked at my Goodreads review for Dubliners because I couldn't remember how I felt about it. And I did only give it three stars. Really? Because last time you were saying it was like a favourite of yours. Well, the entire book. Three right. stars, all gotcha. the short stories. But The Dead was the only one that I actually remembered what happened. Mm. And I did connect with that one. My, my comment was around the lines of, well, I had difficulty connecting with some of these stories because they're very, they're very much in that time and place. Mm. And they're very much about Ireland mm. at the turn of the century. And I don't know, that's not where we are. And actually, I found the writing, like the prose, to be a little bit awkward at times. Mm. I don't know if you found that at all in The Dead. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say, James Joyce, like, get your act together. <laughs> but I was, it was a little bit clunky and weird at times. I don't know. Um, that wasn't something I noticed yeah. above other things. But, well, please yeah. give us a little summary. What's it okay. about? So let's give a, an outline of the story. So the setting is Dublin at the turn of the century. I think it's 1904 or 1905. And at this time, Ireland is still under British rule. It's not yet an independent country. And we're at, a, we're at a house in Dublin, I guess on the society side of things, we're at a fairly high-class gathering, a party which is held by the Morkin sisters, who are Kate, Julia, and Mary Jane. And I believe Mary Jane is actually not technically a sister. She's no, she's the niece. An adopted niece. And the, the Morkin sisters have... She's not an adopted niece, she's uh, just a niece. No, she's the niece, <laughs> but she's been in, adopted as one of the, yeah, right. the sisters, she's, whatever. Yeah, So the Morgan sisters have inherited the house from their brother, I believe, but they're kind of, they're themselves not wealthy. They're all working, basically teaching music in Mm. one way or another. And this is an event, an annual party that is held at this house and it's very successful. And Importantly, Mm. I found out it's an epiphany party. It's an epiphany dinner. That's what it's called. Oh, really? Yeah, which being a lapsed Catholic had never heard of in my life, mm-hmm. but it's celebrating, I think, I'm going to get this wrong. The wise men? Yeah, the yeah, wise yeah. men bringing the gifts or something. Yep. And there is a reference to that in the story, which mm. I didn't pick up as being relevant, but apparently it's super relevant. And this type of event, people often get baptised. Yep. There's certain foods. Never, ever heard of it, but obviously it's meaningful that James Joyce has chosen an epiphany party. Yes. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> Okay, so we're at this party and we're introduced to this cast of characters, beginning with Lily, the housemaid, mm-hmm. who is basically letting people into the house, all of the party goers. And 
the perspective kind of shifts around a few people mm. as they come in and as, as we're introduced to them. And then it settles on Gabriel Conroy, who turns out to be the protagonist of the novel. And uh, one of the things I, of the novel, of the short story. <laughs> and one of the things I thought was very well handled is the way that that perspective did shift without being like a head hoppy type yeah. thing. Yeah, it just kind of floats into place. Yeah, and, and for a while there is really no natural protagonist, but you kind of just dwell a little longer on Gabriel Conroy before going around and seeing what's happening at the party. But uh, but from there it really does settle into his head. And Gabriel is stressing about the speech that he needs to, to give at the party and he's worried about being seen as too intellectual and he's got all sorts of hang-ups about himself that are coming forward there. He has a discussion with Molly Ivers, who is, I guess, a staunch Republican, mm -hmm. Irish Republican, who calls him a West Briton due to him writing for an English newspaper. He's expressing, like, lack of connection to Ireland. And the first half to two-thirds, maybe, of the story is at this party, basically getting to know these characters and having all these sorts of interactions between the characters. And the party ends coming up to dawn, I guess, the, the next morning. And there is a, a singer there, Bartel Darcy, and he's, as people are getting ready to leave, he's upstairs singing this song called The Lass of Orgram, I think it's called. And some of the people, as they're leaving, overhear this song. And one of the people is Gabriel Conroy's wife. Greta. Greta, thank you. And the song reminds her of a boy that she knew when she was younger. And that's where the story kind of takes a different turn and becomes about Gabriel and Greta. Mm. And so they have the coach ride home where what's contrasted is his mood versus her mood. And his mood is very much like, what a great night. Mm. I guess he's in his own little <laughs> He's world. finished his speech. So it's like, you know, when you finish your speech at a wedding and then that's when you drink and you're like, Ew. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they go back to the hotel where they're staying because it's made clear like it's the first time they've been away together and he's getting ready Bouch to get it off. <laughs> and, and he's kind of a little bit oblivious to this mood that she's in where she's just all sad and, and mopey about, about Michael something. Michael Fury. So she, she lays out this story about Michael Fury, who is a boy who fell in love with her Hanson style, <laughs> as if as if they just met at the swimming pool. And What is it with me? Swimming pools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he ends up waiting for her or standing outside her house in the rain for hours and ends up dying of what hypothermia, I can't remember specifically he, what he it is. He dies of just being outside. Yeah. Because you used to die of shit like that. That's back right. Then. The Wuthering Heights style. She <laughs> yeah, just exactly. died of exposure to like rain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was really cold rain, to be fair. But like, yeah. <laughs> Look, he was a bit of an Edgar Linton, right? Right. A bit of a feeble little soul. Yeah. And he was 17, right? Yeah. And so she tells this story. So what does that mean? <laughs> no, but this is a kind of the childhood, her childhood. He was 17. This is many years ago, presumably. And. Totally kills the mood of the night, this revelation about the dead boy. Buzzkill. Thanks, Michael Fury. <laughs> but turns out Gabriel didn't know any of this, and this is all news to him. Mm. And so she goes to bed, and he's left there in his own thoughts. And his thoughts go from this whole thing of, oh, I don't really know her at all. Mm. And this boy obviously meant so much to her was such a, a huge part of her life and her emotions and, and her formative years. And he 
felt like he'd never played that kind of role. Mm. In, in well, he pr- he says, like, I've, I've never felt a love like that. Yeah. Well, first of all, he's never felt a love life like that. And he also feels inadequate. Like, I've never influenced her, like mm. my wife, like that. Good luck influencing any woman like that mm. past the age of about 15. <laughs> that is like <laughs> the cutoff date for taking their soul forever, <laughs> which is why my friends still love Hanson so much. <laughs> And why I'm really going to enjoy that DVD. <laughs> <laughs> and from then his thoughts, Gabriel's thoughts just go from this piece of information to this storm of like, well, we're all just living our lives in reference to the dead oh my and God. we're all going to die and become the people that influence the people that follow us. And, and it's this whole thing that comes out. He would be such an alpha bro. He would be listening to, like, Andrew Tate and shit. Because as soon as his wife's like, oh, another dude once, like, was into me, he's like, ew, damaged goods. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think that's it at all. That is totally to it. He, he has an absolute meltdown over it, like yeah. internal meltdown. Yeah, he does. Complete up in his own head about it. But, like, you can see that that's completely shifted his view of his wife forever. It's like, oh, you're not this pure, innocent little... Did you think that was creature. it? Did you think that was the, the I, cause? I, I mean... Because there was nothing in that relationship that would say that she was... Look, his line of questioning is is just like, did you love him? Did you love him? Yeah. For sure, he's he's got that uh, jealous. attitude. Definitely Jell-Bell. jealous. The vibe I got, and this might be me projecting whatever onto the story, but basically, yes, we get the impression he's keen for some sexy time and mm. he's all excited about it. And then... She's a bit sad and brings up this other guy and all of a sudden it's all over and he's just like so turned off. Suddenly he's finding her unattractive. Like this is basically where the book Mm. goes with it. Like he's initially like super keen and then he's like, oh, actually, now I'm suddenly turned off. Like why? Because he's jealous. I wasn't just – I don't disagree with you. I I think that as I was reading it, I didn't feel like he was suddenly turned off necessarily. That there's this kind of turmoil in his mind about, well – Maybe I can salvage the situation, Mm. even though she's a bit sad. I can coax her around. And at some point he realises, oh, no, this is not going to happen. Which isn't that always the way it goes on your date night, right? Mm. With your (laughs) spouse. You're like, you've been hanging out for months. You're so excited and there's all this pressure. Some dickhead at a party sings this song. (laughs) (laughs) Some dickhead tenor just busts out an old Irish hymn or whatever it was. (laughs) Reminds of your dead boyfriend. Oh, but you know what I mean. Like, there's always there's this pressure. Everyone's keen, and then it comes down to it. You're like, you know what? Let's have a fight. Let's have a fight right now. If That'd it was if it was today, Gabriel would be sitting in the corner on his phone, just texting the tenor, going, "Hey, fucking nice job. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, why don't you go fuck yourself?" <laughs> anyway, the sorry, thing- I interrupted your like. You didn't summarise it. You basically word for word just really told the story. You should have read it. (laughs) So it ends there. It ends with this kind of realisation that he has, dwelling on the fact that it's all the snow's falling, everything's going to die, I'm going to die. Like seriously. Everyone who we care about is dead. (laughs) But, you know, and there's also all the kind of implications about tradition and Ireland and stuff that's thrown in there. But, yeah, what's your reaction to the story? (laughs) Well, I guess there's some interesting stuff that I took away from it that you probably didn't, like as a female reader of this story, and it's written by a man, it's written a long time ago. Mm. 
but I guess that's probably one example, the way it ended, but also the way it started. Yeah. And there was a bit of a difference too, because did you end up watching the movie? I did, yeah. So we both watched the, it was the um, John Huston, Angelica Huston adaptation from I think 1987, mm-hmm. we watched, which is a full length movie yeah. based on a short story. Uh, which is which again, is, pretty common. Yeah. Stephen King again has done it many times. It, actually way more appropriate than trying to cram a novel into a movie. It's true, and it wasn't really embellished too much. No, it was, it was, it was quite the... authentic, yeah. But one one problem I did have with it was that the opening scene didn't, I guess, match with what I had pictured as I was reading the book. Oh, yeah. So the story opens with Lily, as you mentioned, the housemaid, and it a little bit happens, but pretty soon into the story, Gabriel arrives and there's an interaction mm. between the two of them. And she uses the word palaver, which I really like. Oh my God, that line was so good. I'm going to read it for all our listeners because it's such a good line and it holds true to this day. <laughs> I'm just going to come right off the bat and say I didn't love this story. Mm-hmm. But you know what's great about short stories? And I know I was just shitting on them before, but I feel about short stories like I do a little bit about poetry. Yep. First reading, I get, I get very little out of it often, mm. but. In analysing it, that's where the joy comes. And once I started looking into this story, reading it again, watching the movie, coming at it from different angles, reading a few things online, I really started to enjoy it a Mm. lot more because there is a lot under the surface. And if you dig, you get more gems, basically. But anyway, there's some killer lines. And so I'll just explain how we get to it. But basically, Gabriel arrives at the party. The aunties just can't wait for him to arrive because they're hoping that he's going to Look after Freddie Mullins, who's the town drunk, basically. Also, you know, he's clearly a favourite and they just really can't wait for him to arrive and do his speech and all the rest of it. So he arrives with Greta and they're coming in from the snow and basically Lily is going to help him take his coat and all that sort of thing. And so they're alone in the whatever room you call it to take your coat off, (laughs) antechamber. And, you know, he's trying to strike up a conversation and he basically puts his foot in his mouth Mm. and... She's helping him off with his boots and stuff. And he says, oh, are you still at school? And to she's Lily. Like, yeah, yeah, to Lily. He's like, oh, so how's school going, basically? And she's like, I haven't been at school for ages, mate. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing massively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this this was how I read it, right? He's like, oh, how's school going? She's like, yeah, I finished school a while ago. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, then, well, I guess we'll be you'll be getting married soon. We'll be hearing about your wedding. And the line she says is, well, it says, the girl glanced back at him over her shoulder and said with great bitterness, the men that is now is only all palaver and what they can get out of you. Yeah. And isn't that just still so true today, <laughs> Lily? I hate to tell you, what? how many hundred years later? <laughs> that's still the case. No, 100 years later. And then he gets all embarrassed. He's like, oh, shit, I put mm. my foot in it. And he totally did. And then he's trying to make it up to her and then he tries to give her some money. Yeah. And she's like, I won't take your money. He's like, just take it. It's Christmas. And then he fucks off because yeah. he's like, oh, whoopsies. Like, yeah. I've embarrassed myself. I've embarrassed her. The way I read it when on first reading in the book was not just, oh, whoops, I sort of put my foot in it, but also, mm. like, he's being, A, really condescending mm. and, B, kind of hitting on her a little bit. Like, maybe not. Maybe, again, that's just me putting a colour to it that's not there, but it felt a little bit like just the way older men just flirt with young girls and just think they give a shit mm. and she's just kind of uncomfortable and just like, yeah, okay, like, no, I'm not at school can I just have your coat and piss off? Like, <laughs> you're making me uncomfortable. Like, that's the vibe I got. And so when he's saying, oh, you'll be getting married soon, like, it just feels really like she's so young and he's just mm. putting this on her and she's just like, no. Yeah. And second of all, the other thing that I felt like was coming through there was 
with the comment about the young men of today, like she actually probably knows a little bit too much and she's mm. probably had some people do the wrong thing by her or to try to take advantage of her at the very yeah. least. And she's basically said as much to him and he's part of that problem. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. just inappropriately like treating her like she's just an object or whatever. So that's the vibe I got. And then with the movie, I felt like that was all really glossed over. It was almost like a nothing moment in the movie. Whereas to me, initially I thought, why the hell are you telling me about the housemaid? I don't really care. Yeah. Why have you introduced this character and then completely forgotten all about yeah. her for the rest of the story? But on reflection, it's kind of what sets him into a tailspin from the beginning because he walks in and already he's off kilter. But also if you look at how the story ends and, and mm. these relationships and how they play on people's minds and things, that perhaps it had a little bit more meaning from the beginning. So, so one of the interpretations that I, that I saw was from Conroy's perspective, he's going into the situation with a certain idea about what societal norms are that are mm -hmm. traditional norms that he's come from and that, mm. that's the past. Mm -hmm. And here's this young girl and, she, and the world is changing. Right. And the girls are not just getting uh, going out of school and getting married. Mm. Like there's a, the world is, is a little bit different. Mm. And he's just putting his foot in it because he doesn't understand and he mm. doesn't know. So he asked the logical question, oh, you're not out of, you're out of school? Time to get married then because mm. that's what it was. And here is this girl representing the youth of today yeah. who's telling him, no, actually things are changing. And he's like, oh, I don't know what to do with some money. Like, that's, <laughs> some money. That, that's the kind of dynamic there. If I had a dollar for every man that told me I should get married right out of school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I found that awkward and I read that scene a few times when I, mm. and in fact, the first couple of pages are just like an info dump. Yeah. Right? You're straight into it. It's like, here are all the characters in I the story. I didn't even touch on that, but seriously, delete. We're watching people arrive at the party. Like, talk about not cutting to the chase. Mm. Everyone should be at the party or just show Gabriel arriving at the party. But we see several people arrive beforehand. But then there's a little comment about the, the three wise men and mm. I guess that point is made. But my honest assessment of this story is like you could lose two-thirds minimum and have a better story. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you what though, like th this is something I thought about with this story as well because I think about, well, what is this story about? And mm. if you try to distill it, for me, the story is about the second half. The yeah. story is about Conroy and his relationship to his wife and – you don't really need that whole first half of the story to no. be in there to tell that story. You don't even need story. Lily. I think Lily adds a bit of colour, but you don't need it. Yeah, but I think it actually sometimes in writing, the imperfections and the things that shouldn't be in there actually can be a strength mm. because it does add more Who to knows? the story. Who knows? Maybe right? it needed the time for you to settle in. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, there is more in there. And the first half is not about Conroy and his relationship to his wife. They barely say a word to each other mm. if they do it all at the party. Like, the party's about the goings-on and the party is more about, well, this changing face of, of Ireland mm. and the conflict between the Republicans and the English sy sympathisers and mm. all that kind of thing is thrown in in there and there's class satire mm. in there that, again, this is more than a hundred years ago in a place I've never been mm. and I, it didn't resonate with me that much. But the second half did resonate with me because it's a personal story and it's, a, yeah. it's people. But I think, well, if the story was just the second half, is it as good? Mm. And I don't think it is. Like, I think if it's just the, if it's just Conroy's little moment with his wife, it's fine. Mm. But somehow the rest of it does give it kind of a more completeness. Yeah, like, gives it a uniqueness as well. Like it's its own thing. 
I think maybe part of it is we've all had big nights, right? So you go, you go to a party. <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> you no go comment. to a party, you have a great night, you've been drinking, and then you leave at 6am. And that's a mood, right? That's a mood. <laughs> yeah. Whatever conversation that you're having at that point, whatever, like the emotions are so much more heightened. And everything is like there's this strange light on everything. Like it's a weird world that you're in that you're not usually in. Like mm. you're not usually in that world. And I think Which that really- Which is why we do it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that really contributes Portal. to the second part of the story because they're back at the hotel and, and things are all weird, but they mm. are always weird. Mm. And so you kind of need that party to have been there yeah. where everyone was kind of rowdy and arguing mm. for that to just be the quiet moment at the end and for it to really complete itself as a story. I just wanted to talk about Gabriel's speech because mm-hmm. that's like yep. pretty central. It's probably like the middle of the story yeah. or something like the midpoint. I don't know. There's this bit of a lead up to the speech he's going to give and he's a bit anxious about what he's going to say. And as you indicated, he's sort of anxious. People are going to think he's a bit of a wanker. Like, yeah. oh, if I do a Browning poem, people aren't going to know who I'm talking about. Like, right, oh, Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> You're so smart. But he sees it as quite important and the speech is Really good. Yeah. And it's a speech that still holds true today. And that's probably true of the entire story, apart from what everyone's wearing and eating and the fact that we don't, or I certainly don't celebrate. Epiphany. Epiphany. (laughs) But like the themes and even the plot is still very relevant. It's still very relevant. And even at the end, they're all like trying to hail an Uber, basically. It's just an Uber made of horses, but it's still very relatable. Anyway, the speech... It's talking about the move into a new generation and sort of lamenting the past the, or the mm. loss of the past and talking about the future and basically paying respect to people who have passed on and things like that. Now, I thought the speech was great when I read it. Yep. And then when I saw the movie, I was crying. Yeah, it was like, a good performance. It was a great performance and just what was said and, you know, I've lost my dad and so, you know, that's that sort of grief is always with you and it'll just catch you at these times when, when that stuff is brought up. I think John Huston, the director of that movie, was dying when oh my he, God. he made that movie. Like, mm, that was his and, last movie and he and his was his whole family was involved yeah, in the movie. basically. Uh, ladies and gentlemen... It is not the first time that we have gathered round this hospitable board as the recipients, or perhaps I had better say, the victims of the hospitality of a certain good ladies. Indeed, no tradition does our country more honor than its overwhelming hospitality. Some might consider it a failing, and if so, It is a princely one. Ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a a sceptical, and if I may use the phrase, a thought-tormented world, where the values of the past are often at a discount, but it gives me joy that under this one roof, the spirit of good, old-fashioned, warm-hearted, courteous Irish hospitality is still alive among us. Long may it continue. And yet, in gatherings such as this, sadder thoughts will occur to our minds. Thoughts of the past, of youth, of changes. 
of absent friends that we miss here tonight. But our work is among the living. We must not brood or stoop to gloomy moralizing. We have all of us living duties and living affections which claim, and rightly, our strenuous endeavors. Now here we are met, momentarily away from the bustle of our everyday routines, in a spirit of good fellowship, in the true spirit of camaraderie. And as the guests of, what shall I call them? The three graces of the Dublin musical world. <laughs> so he's talking about the people who have influenced them, who've passed on. And, you know, when you're at an event like that and you think of who's not there, like, and I've just come off Christmas missing my dad. And so that's in my mind. But then he starts talking about the loss of hospitality. <laughs> And yes. that's what made me cry. Yeah. <laughs> so he's talking about good old-fashioned Irish hospitality and how it's falling into the past. And I don't know, I missed it too, Yes. <laughs> which is really weird. And again, just coming off the back of Christmas and a lot of family events and things, and I love having visitors and we hosted Christmas, and it's reflecting back the fact that we are becoming disconnected mm. in a way. And even looking at this party and so watching the movie – and seeing this party where it's this mishmash of weird people, yeah. like who you wouldn't normally get together. They're all together. They're having a great time. They're dancing. I wish we had that kind of dancing now. Like, yeah. I mean, we were talking a little while <laughs> Some ago of about- those moves were like, were pretty funny though. That was stripping the willow. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, right? Like we were joking about stripping the willow last time and my little, or whenever, with my childhood crush or whatever. But like- I was able to, like, that was a human interaction mm. that I had at that yeah. age and that I would still love to have now, like, not have a crush, but, like, this interaction, dancing, touching people. Yeah. We don't do it. No. You know, nowhere near enough. And, like, they'd just, they'd pass each other and just say something cutting yeah. or say something, like, kind of dramatic. It's lost. We don't have these opportunities to interact in that same way anymore. We're so detached and we're so... But it's funny know. to reflect, though, because, I mean, how much of it is real? Oh, it used to be like that. And how much of it is nostalgia? Because even when this is written more than 100 years ago, there is that reflection. Oh, the hospitality is, is mm. gone. And then we're still saying the exact same thing exactly. now. It's like when they, they publish those articles or letters to the editor about teenagers these yeah, days and you realise it's generation. from 200 years yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe we're not losing things. I feel like we are. I feel like there is a human connection yeah. that is being lost gradually and maybe we connect in other ways now that we never could. Like I can keep in touch with family overseas much more easily mm. with video chats and things like that than I ever could in that time. But I'm not having these parties where we dance and someone sings. Someone in the group yeah. gets up and sings. That would just be really awkward if someone did that. <laughs> it was pretty awkward in the movie. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> they were humouring Aunt Julia, weren't yeah. they? But So another interesting thing about that speech and that scene in some of the analyses that I read is that James Joyce was, when he wrote Dubliners, was in Europe, was in Italy and mm. overseas. So he was writing these from his memory and kind of being nostalgic about being in Ireland where mm. he wasn't. So some of that is coming through as his own nostalgia. What's interesting about Gabriel's speech too is it really put me in my place, right? Because I, here I am thinking the literary equivalent of this meeting could have been an email. <laughs> this short story could have been a flash fiction <laughs> or a much shorter short story. And then he starts on his 
little lecture about how kids these days don't appreciate the good old days and the, yeah. the ways of doing things. And uh, let me find that. Sometimes I fear that this new generation, educated or hyper-educated as it is, will lack those qualities of humanity, of hospitality, of kindly humour which belong to an older day. Mm. So in other words, like, we're, we are hyper-educated. We've got so much information about what makes a good story. And I know, and speaking for myself, I am hyper-educated about what's supposed to make a good story. Mm. But that doesn't mean I'm capable of writing one. Yeah. Because it's not really about that. It's about the humanity. Yeah. And so while I'm sitting here judging this and being like, and you were saying to yourself, oh, some of the sentences are a bit awkward and we didn't really need this character. Like, reduce your cast of characters, mm. for starters, you know, and why are we showing, like, cut to the chase, like, all these pieces of advice that you would read and that you, I would be a proponent of now. It's like, is that the answer? Or am I just pushing us towards something that's maybe not better? Yeah. I mean, that's debatable, I guess, but... It was just interesting to read that and think, oh, that's exactly what I just did about this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of nice. Like, I want my story to just have an inbuilt, like, anti-critic, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> commentary in it. Just so, an interlude in the middle where it just calls out the reader. So, oh, you're getting bored, are you? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're going to only give it three stars, are you? Well, what you really need to think about is, is that a you problem or a me problem? <laughs> I don't know, man. But, yeah, I found that speech really moving and, and that looked that's what it's about. It's about the dead, right? Yeah. That is what this story is about. And I guess if I could sum up what I think the message is, mm. it's that these people do linger on, that they have an influence and that we're all sort of part of what's come before. Yeah. And maybe we're pushing towards something new, but ultimately we're still, I don't know, shaped by the people who've come before that we care about. Mm. Sometimes not even the ones we care about. Like, like we're shaped by James Joyce now. The way we write is shaped by that, amongst many other authors who've who've come before. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's like thinking about how those people linger on. Like maybe in the fever dreams of like Michael Fury coming back from the dead to just have a lustful affair with, or maybe it's like the littler things and how how these people influence you long after they're gone. Yeah. And I think like again, that's such a that's such a six AM after a long party <laughs> revelation when you're totally. sitting in the hotel room. Super deep. And you just take a drag of your cigarette and you're like Yeah. Aren't we all like, a know, bit dead inside? At the snow outside <laughs> and then going, Yeah. Like the, I feel the like snow death. the snow is general all over Ireland. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> just for a bit of fun, I just wanted to share another little relatable passage. So Aunt Kate's like going off, which I've been known to do, as you well know. Mm -hmm. She's just putting her foot in it as well and just talking about the Pope. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. And she has to get shut up as well. Yeah, and they're like, ah, it's nay on the ope pay. And uh, she's eating her words, basically. And the niece steps in and she says, and besides Aunt Kate, said Mary Jane, we really are all hungry. And when we are hungry... We are all very quarrelsome. <laughs> <laughs> I like that scene as well because Aunt Kate clearly starts off saying one thing and finds herself the centre of attention and just keeps talking. <laughs> and then she ends up somewhere that even she didn't expect to end up and everyone's like, Yikes. Mm. So Aunt Kate gets hangry, everyone, Yep, as do we all. And when we are thirsty, we are also quarrelsome, added Mr Brown. Agreed. So one thing the analysts would say and I'm talking about the English teachers yep. around the world. And if I think of my old high school English teachers, a word that they would love to use in describing this story, microcosm. Oh, yeah. Micro love a microcosm. That word 
was used in maybe like my year 11 English class yeah. and maybe year 12, like percentage of my life wise, yeah. like a solid 99% of the amount of times I'm going to hear if you it draw, in my life. Yeah, if you draw a graph, a like graph of, of the number of times <laughs> that's been used in your life, it ends at year 12. Like, exactly. But life. now there's going to be a little spike in the graph because oh. I'm going to say microcosm Ooh, again. There right? it goes. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's what it is, right? We're seeing this little party we're seeing the political discussions with Molly Ivers mm. and the, even the religious discussion that I've just mentioned there where Aunt Kate's putting her foot in it in front of Mr Brown, who's Catholic, I guess, and that's part of what was being shown here. If we're talking, it's not just about a nostalgia about the good old days. It's also a nationalism thing. It's a nostalgia about, well, what is Ireland mm. and, and what Ireland could be and let's keep Ireland as Ireland and mm. all that sort of stuff as well. So... I mean, I think that was probably a key theme that was important to this story yep. too. I guess that's the part that you or I maybe don't particularly resonate with because it's not super important to us, well, although we, we it's an issue in modern Australia. It's true. I guess uh, what I mean is that we don't we don't live in that reality. I mean, a lot of it is cultural criticism or satire and the nuances of that are not easily apparent in the way they might be to someone who lives in that time and place. But for, I agree some of those themes are definitely still relevant. I mean, that same criticism of why are you going overseas when you haven't been to all of the places mm. in your own country? People say that all of the time about Australia. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It is relevant now. You know, like there's the Republican argument that keeps rearing its head from time mm. to time in Australia too. And it's yeah. the same thing. It's the exact same thing, actually. Mm. To what extent should some other nation have political and yeah. any influence over what we're doing? But, you know... If we go on the, on the dead principle, well, every influence, like yeah. it's influenced so much of what Australia is today and what we th might think of as some independent, unique Australian culture is founded on what's come before. So I wanted to come back to the end of the story because, I mean, from the way you're talking, I, I get the feeling that you connected much more with the party than with the, no, the ending. No, not really. The, I mean, I guess the in the movie party. that's quite, it's almost more prevalent in the movie the mm. party is such a big chunk of yeah. of the story and they, the ending is quite short yeah in the written story it's a bigger it's a bit bigger chunk. but it, it is still short but i think like if the story had ended when the party ended obviously there's no resolution but for me like the all of the emotional weight is delivered in no, the I final no i mean right? i fully agree well not all of it so the the speech to me was part of it because mm. like i mean that's the midpoint right yeah. like that's where it sets it up and absolutely i think it's the ending that delivers like the meaning and the essence of what the story's really about. Can I just call out one word in the very first sentence? Was it literally? Literally. Yeah. If it's good enough for yeah. James Joyce, it's good enough for me. But, <laughs> but that's kind of what I wanted to say. And I don't know how much of this is, is intentional because there's such a contrast between reading that first page, like you're thrown into this situation where firstly, nothing's really making immediate sense because mm. there's so many characters being thrown in with their relationships, with past history, and this person is this person's relationship. Yeah, it's and not clear first, what you're meant to care about yet. Yeah, in the yeah. first two pages, it's just info dump and not particularly, it, it doesn't have the appearance of something that's really been polished. All right, I mean, so I, I you think, come give us your critique's eye on James Joyce's imperfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm just, I'm just saying, like, it's an interesting to, to contrast that against the ending, which is so perfectly... Mm. weighted and every word is perfectly chosen. And I don't know how much of it is just, is the point of that to throw you into this chaos of the moment of the party or uh, I just don't really understand what the, what the motivation is there. But 
Yeah, the, the first line of this story, and they say polish your first line and make sure it grabs the attention. The first line is, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. And that <laughs> stood out to me. Mm, like, same. Not just, it's an adverb, oh no, but like, <laughs> what a does cliche. that mean? She was literally run off her feet. Like, But she wasn't literally run off her feet. because no, she's, she was, was still... Running. Getting about on her feet. <laughs> it, it just it just was a very strange to me opening line. I don't think that's yeah. a, that's an opening that really captures you. And then from then it introduces a bunch of characters. And I had to read this page, like just mm. go through it a few times just to make sure I had the characters straight and understand the relationships. So I'm going to contrast that because it does go into this really quiet, subdued and focused piece mm. in the last page. Yeah. There really is a huge payoff at the end. How poor a part I've played in your life. It's almost as though I'm not your husband. That we've never lived together as man and wife. What were you like then? To me, your face is still beautiful. But it's no longer the one for which Michael Fury braved death. Why am I feeling this riot of emotion? What stirred it up? The ride in the cab. Her not responding when I kissed her hand. My aunt's party. My own foolish speech. Wine, dancing, music. Poor Aunt Julia. That haggard look on her face when she was singing a raid for the bridal. Soon she'll be a shade too with the shade of Patrick Morgan and his horse. Soon perhaps I'll be sitting in that same drawing room dressed in black. The blinds will be drawn down and I'll be casting about in my mind for words of consolation. And we'll find only lame and useless ones. Yes, yes, that will happen very soon. Yes, the newspapers are right. Snow is general all over Ireland falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. One by one, we're all becoming shades. Better to pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. How long you locked away in your heart the image of your lover's eyes when he told you that he did not wish to live. I've never felt that way myself towards any woman, but I know that such a feeling must be love. Think of all those who ever were, back to the start of time. And me, transient as they, flickering out as well into their grey world. Like everything around me, this solid world itself which they reared and lived in, 
is dwindling and dissolving. Snow is falling. Falling in that lonely churchyard where Michael Fury lies buried. Falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Those paragraphs are so carefully written. All this great imagery of bringing together all of the elements in the story that had built to that point mm. and encapsulated in this story of Michael Fury and how we can never influence the living more than the dead, mm. uh, I guess. And then he links that into the idea of the snow falling gently, basically the living burying the dead or, mm. or the dead burying the living, depending mm. on how you think about it. It's equal to all. Mm. Like we all die, yes, right? That's yes. probably one thing that's common with everyone. Yeah. But like... Also, those paragraphs are incredibly relatable to me and clearly you too. Mm. And I just feel like that this is just like midlife crisis, the musical, yeah. right? <laughs> like that is such a midlife crisis that he's having yeah. in his hotel room at 6am. And he's talking about like basically I've had too many drinks and my wife's just thrown a complete curveball yeah. and she literally just cried herself to sleep right now. Now I'm here by myself and having a crisis yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it feels like. And he really captures that moment so well. And that's the part of the story, I think, that really sticks with you. Yeah, that feeling. And it is a feeling like that we all have of just this, I don't know, like the ghosts, all of our ghosts. We've all got ghosts. And yeah, he's talking about how he's like entered this realm of like somewhere between the living yeah. and the dead. Like that's where he's at at that time. It's like he's seeing ghosts and they're all there in the room with him. Mm. And and But they are in a way, like yeah. they're influencing him. They're, they're spooking him <laughs> and they're present. They might not be physically present, but they are present in his thoughts and in the thoughts clearly of his wife. Yeah. And that's the, if we talk about from a structure writing perspective, that's the Joyce in Epiphany. That's That's the change that the character has that the story is about is that moment at the end where of realisation that after that realisation, the character is different. And I, th I think that's... Well, a their relationship is different, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> they're never going to recover from this. Well, um, He's just probably, said he's never experienced love while he's looking at his wife. But like, at the same all... time, I, I feel like they'll have a nice sleep, they'll wake up, and things will be back to normal. <laughs> yes, because sorry. it's just like, it's one of those things. Yeah, you just totally. need some sleep, too. You just need some sleep. You probably need something to eat. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not sure if you know this about the story, but oh. it's autobiographical. Oh, okay. So James Joyce's wife... I did not know that. Exactly the same thing. She had a Michael Fury. She told him about this in a, I don't know if it was the same setting, mm. basically about a young boy who died and blah, blah, blah. Same thing. So wow. he's, he's just written basically the experience that he had. So I think that's part of why- That is so on brand for James Joyce to <laughs> write an autobiographical story, seriously. That's probably why it has such a- He would have a podcast, wouldn't yeah, he? Like us. For sure. <laughs> that's why it has such a, a feeling of, yeah, you know, I get why you'd feel that way at that moment and- He's After just being parties. super raw and real about his yeah. own. I almost wonder if, I can't get inside his mind, but I'm, I almost wonder if he was writing the story about the party and then he added this bit to the end that was a personal mm. thing. Is it, you know, it's, it wasn't originally part of the story, but then he was like, yeah, actually, this all links in together and that's where it's going. Maybe. 
we may never know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a question for you. Mm. We've all got ghosts in our past. What are the, who or what are the ghosts that influence you? Like Jeez. what springs to mind when you read this story? Like I've mentioned my dad. Yeah. Who are the dead? I mean, it, you can literally say anyone and everyone, as you've said, like mm. the whole culture. I mean, definitely for everyone, I think your parents, like yeah. they, they influence you when they're not here. My, whether they're dead or alive. Whether they're dead or alive. <laughs> whether they're in the room with you or not. You know? There's a spectre <laughs> wherever you look. <laughs> but it's true. Like the, the, the amount of times that your parents pop into your head as a kind of an influence or a thought mm. of what would they think or I how often, would they react to this situation. This wouldn't be true for everyone, obviously, but I think it's probably quite common that the voice in your head is your mother's mm. voice, like telling yeah. you to be careful or telling you what to worry about yeah. is certainly the case for me. Yeah. All right. But what about the romantic? What about the Michael Fury? Has well, anyone stood in the rain? Has anyone died of exposure for you? <laughs> no. no. We live in Australia, so. <laughs> they could have got heat stroke. <laughs> it never, it, the snow is never general here. <laughs> I, well, I we can't got that little with, taste of your love letter. Yeah, I can't come with an equivalent experience, of course. Do you ever have... Oh, God. <laughs> no, this happened literally a few days True ago. I remembered something from high school and just, like, cringed so <laughs> fucking hard at myself. Okay. Like, just, Please well, share. No, no, I'm not sharing. Uh, no way, let no us way. all cringe. People love a cringe. No, it's locked. I have to lock that one up and throw it back down the well of repression. <laughs> Come on. Give what us about a cringe. You? What are your Joycean <laughs> dead people in your My life? Joycean dead people. What are, I, what are your shades? My shades. I guess, like, what sprung to mind, obviously, apart from my dad and just... As we said, the general influence of our ancestors and people that we've known. I was thinking about <laughs> when I ran into my high school boyfriend mm-hmm. at Esfez. Yeah. And it wasn't that he was dead. He wasn't. He was very much alive. He was right there. And we had a lovely chat. Mm. But I felt like that me was dead. And it was a yeah. really weird feeling. It, it, it felt so disconnected. It was like I remember myself at. Yeah. 18, 19, and yet it's like a different person lived that life. It doesn't feel like me. It feels like I watched a movie about mm. someone that happened to. And I guess that struck me at the time. I was just like, wow, that that whole relationship and that whole self I was at that time isn't really me anymore. And we, I mean, we've established I haven't changed since I was 12, so it's not, it's not like I've had any massive glow up or anything, you know, in terms of personality. I'm the same person. Mm. But I think you change in more ways than you realize. Maybe. And like, I think the whole life is that is a process of changing mm. and you never are the person that you were. But it's- this person has had no doubt a profound influence on me in my life and certainly in romantic relationships and things yeah. subsequently. And yeah, and we don't really have anything to do with each other now. Yeah. So I know I've, I've had similar experiences, I think at, at school reunions yeah, very much so. Talking to people yeah. who were close friends or you went through, I don't know, some shit in quotes <laughs> together. Oh, dear. And they've just changed as people and mm. well, of course they have. Yeah, but good. They, but they've become unrecognisable or whatever connection that you had or whatever you shared in the moment is just you can't find it anymore in them. You can't see it. Yeah, and you have moved on from that Yeah. You wouldn't be as enchanted in whatever that was or taken by whatever that was. And listen, if you are all stalking us, hi. (laughs) (laughs) 
But thank you for recommending it to me because, I don't know, like I said, I, I started to enjoy it the more I looked into it mm. and I'm sure the more we talked about it and the more, like, I Googled it or whatever, the more I would enjoy it. It's, I don't know, it makes me feel intellectual to read James Joyce because I've always just thought everything he wrote was Ulysses. Like, I knew he'd written other things, but I thought they were all as dense and hard to come at. And so I guess I've always been put off. And I'm sure other people feel the same way. I know there'd be listeners who have read it, tortured themselves, like, and read Ulysses, and good for you if you have, but that was probably more as a self-education exercise Mm. as opposed to something to enjoy. And I think you can enjoy this story, and I think it is Midlife Crisis the musical, and if you're in that sort of phase of life or even older, then you will be able to relate to this story and enjoy it and, you know, watch the movie. Yeah. Because that's a pretty good representation of what the story is. Yeah, well, I enjoyed this a, a lot more this time around. I, I really liked it. I think just giving it the time and the space and doing the extra thinking about it, extra mm. reading about it, I really enjoyed its imperfections. I, I, I like the fact that it wasn't clear-cut. It wasn't perfectly formed. It wasn't mm. just this well laid out from start to finish. This is the arc and this is how mm. I get to it. And it's so polished that it just becomes like this perfect thing it was it's actually quite rough Mm. and you're never really sure what it's trying to say where it's trying to go takes like a left turn goes in different territory and you're really selling it (laughs) all of that makes it better all of that all of that makes you think about it Mm. and i think that's always the sign of a good story whether it's a short story or a novel is that you come out at, at the end of it and you're still thinking about it. Mm. You don't just put it down and go, oh, well, that all wrapped up nicely and now I'm on to yeah. the next thing. And it's equal parts satisfying and thought-provoking. Yeah. Like you're still left with questions, but you feel like satisfied, like yeah. I'm glad I spent my time yeah. engaging with that for sure. So it's my turn. I'm going to recommend something to you. I'm going to go easy on you mm-hmm. because I know we've got a little bit of reading coming up <laughs> in our yeah, calendars. A little, bit, a little bit. Just a little bit. But And we'll probably, I guess, get to this later, like in our next full yeah. episode after we've finished with... So it might end up being a month or two. Yeah, we'll track. see, yeah. like down the track. But I'm going to present it to you now. Plenty of time. And that way our listeners can also join in. Absolutely. And this is completely accessible. Even if you've got zero time, you'll be able to engage with this one. So... Don't be alarmed by the size of the book that I present to you. Oh, gee. It's a collection of poems. Oh, poems. Okay. Yeah, I thought Harold it was Bloom. time for a poem. No, not Harold Bloom. He's the dude. The editor dude. The... Yeah. Yep. He's the dude who gets to write the preface. Claim them all as his own. Yeah, have opinions. And actually, he's got some fun opinions about the ones I'm recommending. So what I want to recommend to you is the Lewis Carroll section. Okay. I want you to read the Lewis Carroll poems. And I want you to read Harold Bloom's introduction to the Lewis Carroll poems. So, yeah. Okay. This was a graduation present from my parents, Mm. this book. That's a chunky one. It says, to Amanda, with love on the occasion of... They've written this in blue pen on blue paper. Just want to point that out. Listen, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) This is the voice inside my head. (laughs) On the occasion of your graduation, mum and dad, the 18th of April, 2007... So Um, that would be my university graduation. Where I did not study literature, so that's a bit ironic, isn't it? It's like, whoopsies, you've wasted five years of your life probably studying something you shouldn't have bothered with. Mm. Here's some (laughs) fucking poems. (laughs) That was really the energy of Mm. that little inscription. Okay, so the poems contained within, which you could probably, if you're listening to this, you can find online. You'll be able to find online. No doubt. Public domain. 
poems are in the public domain. The Hunting of the Snark, The Mad Gardener's Song, A Pigtail, The Walrus and the Carpenter. So at least one of those should be familiar to you. I did a, um, a project in high school on the Jabberwocky. Is the, the, that's Lewis Carroll, right? Mm-hmm. It's not included in this collection. Um, no. no. You can read the Jabberwocky as well. Why not? It's not in here. That's why not. Oh, okay. But it's public domain. All right. Well, okay. What's your reason for recommending these? I know that Lewis Carroll is totally cancelled. <laughs> oh, is he? Oh, yeah. What's that? Um, he's a pedophile. Oh, is he? The worst type of cancelled. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, controversy. We can discuss that next time. Okay. But his poems really appeal to my specific sense of humour, which is like intellectual silliness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's why I love Monty Python. It's why I love the Mighty Boosh. This is another example. It's just silly. It's completely silly, but yet it's clever. And I don't know, maybe I am just a basic bitch. Don't don't say anything. Stop. Mm -hmm. I see the look on your face. It's also just so charming. Like, mm-hmm. it's fun to read and it's fun to read out loud. It's got a really nice cadence to it. The rhymes are surprising. The rhymes can be surprising when you make up words. Yep. And that kind of Dr. Seuss energy where yep. things just rhyme but also they're fun. I guess that's why I love it. And some of those poems, like, that's a really thick book of poems. Mm. And a lot of them are so dense. Yeah. And so, like, again, you'd have to read them and discuss them and unpack them to really get anything out of it. Yeah. I feel like Lewis Carroll, it's just there. It's you can accessible. enjoy it. It's yeah. totally accessible and it's fun. And I felt like you deserved a little fun. In your Excellent. Life. Well, that'll be a nice break from all of the flash fiction that we'll be reading. Yeah. Be a little palate cleanser. Yeah, after for all. sure. And that just about wraps it all up for us today. Happy New Year once again. Happy New Year. I am so excited. Like, I keep forgetting that we're going to read all these stories. And the entries are still rolling in. You know, Mm -hmm. last time we recorded, we said uh, we hadn't had any daredevils yet. Even by the time that we released the episode, we did. We had two. Now we've got three. That's right. We'll be discussing those on the podcast as well. And I can't wait. I know they're a little bit scared. Don't be scared. Be terrified. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm definitely looking forward to it. At the moment, we're still very much in preparation mode, getting everything set up and ready to go, but I can't wait to just sit back and read all those stories. It was such a great time last time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Amanda. Till next time. (laughs) Right on. Right on. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right. Oh, I love these underwater sounds. <laughs> I'm just going to stare at my DVD cover while you make underwater sounds with the microphone <laughs> and talk about hermit crab fiction. <laughs> Cancelled. So how old was he, 20 in that? Um, 20 or 21. It's fine. I'm now 40, right? Like, So that's still not cool. Twice his age. Yeah, but you, you he's but still he's forty one. Yeah, so it's fine. That's right. Is it? I don't know. A lot of grey area. There's a lot of grey area beneath the suit. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>